Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to the show. This is Stephen Moe speaking. I'm glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with James Nicotine today, all about the initiative that he's recently founded called Blue Cradle. And in the interview, we find out all about that, and in particular, about his love of the ocean. I really enjoyed hearing his perspective on life and his moving to New Zealand relatively recently. And I think Blue Cradle is definitely one of those initiatives that's worth supporting. So I'm glad to be able to shine a little bit of light on it. Make sure you check out the website in the show notes for it, because he's looking for volunteers and other people to get involved. And if you enjoy this episode, then there might be somebody else that you know who would enjoy it as well. So why not share it with them? Also, keep in mind that there's more than 200 other episodes in the back catalog and there's heaps of information at theseeds.nz and if you're listening in a podcasting app well why not hit subscribe that way you won't miss out on future episodes either now let's get into this interview with james all right so it's a real pleasure to welcome james nicotine who's a marine scientist a filmmaker a consultant and the founder of blue cradle thanks for joining me Thank you for having me, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be on Seeds. I'm a, I'm a fan. I've been listening uh, ever since I've moved to Christchurch, so 18 months now. I've been listening to more and more episodes. I haven't listened to all of them. You haven't listened to all of them yet? Yeah. Not yet, not yet. <laughs> There's now, you know, the funny thing is it's about to hit 200 episodes. So I was reflecting the other day and actually, like, that's a lot of content now. If most of them go for an hour, 45 minutes, you know, you could be here a long time. Yeah. So what we do on Seeds is we go back in time and we try to find out a bit about a person and their context and where they're from in order to understand what they do today. So um, in your case, I actually know quite a lot about Blue Cradle because um, I work as a lawyer and I've helped you with that initiative, um, but the people listening may not. So before we get into that, could we just go right back in time and tell us a bit about your childhood and where you grew up? Sure. Um, so I'm French, British. So I've got a French dad who sadly passed away a few years ago and British mom mm-hmm. and I grew up in the French Alps so I was born in Paris my parents moved near the French Alps my father got a job in Geneva uh, working in, in the in the IT for Reuters and my mother is an English teacher so she worked in, in that space in, mm-hmm. in the French Swiss uh, border region so what was that like for you growing up I guess with two identities given your parents were from different backgrounds yeah I was always a uh, a, a dual citizen of France and the UK, mm-hmm. and my name is James. And growing up, when you're called James in a French country like France, where everyone's called uh, Pierre or Jacques or mm-hmm. Charles, or you know, uh, people um, think of you as an outsider. Having said that, there were other outsiders as well. We have uh, lots of migrants in France. We have people from Algeria, from Tunisia, mm-hmm. from from Turkey, from Morocco. So, you know, I was in a multicultural class room full of you know children who don't really know what that means and we're just having a, you know, a lot of fun. So it was actually a, a great childhood that I had. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Oh, that's cool. So the Alps, tell me about that. Like in my mind, I'm thinking skiing, snow, like that type of a life. Where, where were you though? Yeah. So the French uh, Swiss region of the Alps and the Le Mans, so it's Lake Le Mans. You've got one side that's French and the other side is Swiss. Mm-hmm. And you are in an alpine region made of lakes and mountains um, that's, you know, very rural uh, in a sense. You have the main, you know, cities and hubs of Geneva, uh, Tonon, Evian, Lausanne, 
Montreux, and further south you have Annecy, which is the capital of the French region, Haute-Savoie. Um, but it's very rural. The, the main economy there is, you know, uh, milk and dairy, a bit similar to Canterbury. Okay. Uh, in the mountains, you have the ski of, you know, the ski ad, uh, sort of adventuring uh, in winter um, and summer hiking. Uh, so, so it's very sort of outdoors kind of place. Mm, yeah. It sounds like, yeah, I mean, again, the image in my mind is, is kind of beautiful <laughs> mountains and valleys and things. Absolutely stunning. You have Mont Blanc, which is the highest mountain at 4810 uh, meters, 4810. Uh, 4, and stunning, you know, the, mm. the Chamonix is, is sort of the iconic alpine destination with, um, you know, a history of mountaineering, mm. a history of, um, of, you know, adventure, exploration, and also sadly now, um, you know, the impacts of climate change. So, mm. you know, we're seeing a lot of those glaciers melting, mm. erosion happening in the Alps, mm. um, and being a witness of also of, of um, sort of the overpopulation as well. So habitat destruction, because mm. over the last 20 years, my, my home region has been really sort of uh, attractive to many people. So lots and lots of people move there and build houses and buildings so there's quite a big um, busy place now quite bu you know, busy yeah right and one of the things that we're going to come on to is the work you're doing today with blue cradle which is focused on the ocean so it sounds like you weren't growing up by the ocean or by the sea um, is that right or yeah what was the connection there yeah yeah i mean my parents were quite mobile and and i suppose being born in paris and my mother being from the uk mm -hmm. uh, i crossed the channel every every year mm -hmm. uh, at least once for christmas and possibly uh, more. And also we went down to the Mediterranean. My father, uh, my father was of Mediterranean descent, Jewish mother, mm -hmm. uh, Sicilian, um, and had ties with the, the city of Nice. Nice was where my grandmother worked as a curator at the Chagall Museum, the, the, the famous uh, Jewish Polish uh, painter. Mm -hmm. And so I used to go there as a kid every summer to Nice. And then later to Corsica, who we went to Corsica every summer mm. uh, in the Mediterranean. So, so my childhood was made of sort of uh, quite a few trips to the Ardèche region as well, the south of France, Corsica, Mediterranean, uh, you know, lavender smells and, and, uh, and, and lovely sunsets on the, mm. on the blue sea. And, mm. and uh, so, yeah, diving and, and snorkeling sort of came about during that time when I was yeah, eight, nine years old. Right. And did you know right away that the ocean had a special call for you or that, that you really loved it? Or did that develop over the years? Yeah, initially it was really sort of, a, uh, yeah, I guess my father was uh, really into his, his sort of uh, films and, and, uh, and sort of, uh, what's the word, um, like modern technologies. And, and he, he discovered the technologies involved with diving. So scuba, you know, the scuba apparatus, and he, he purchased all of it in the 1990s when I was, yeah, uh, in my sort of 10th year. And he got all the gear and basically took us diving without any, uh, I mean, w you know, without us having any training. So we just sort of followed him and followed, you know, followed his lead mm -hmm. uh, with my sister. And we sort of learned how to dive uh, through the eyes of, of my father. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't always a, ple uh, uh, a pleasant experience because it was quite, uh, quite difficult. We had to walk across uh, you know, wild uh, so, sort of vegetation. You know, we parked on dirt roads in the middle of nowhere. Right. And then we had to walk down to the sea and, and jump in the water, which often was 
choppy and quite frightening you know as a child you're like you know what are we doing <laughs> uh, but then you go underwater and then you see all these incredible creatures and mm. that's when you sort of think wow there's actually a whole other world down there that you don't know of that you sort of you know you ignore when you're on you know living on land so yeah. that was really sort of an awakening yeah yeah and what did caused your father to be so interested in getting into diving do you think did you ever talk to him about that or yeah i guess yeah i mean he was really into technology i think right. really that was really his thing and he was also quite um i suppose he had some issues with 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 you know living in the modern world and things were perhaps going a bit fast mm -hmm. so i guess you know taking the time to reflect to pause and diving is one of those activities where you do that you sort of mm. you forget about what's happening on land you're underwater you don't listen you just listen to the silence mm. the, the the you know the famous Jacques Cousteau film mm. is uh, is le monde du silence which is the world of silence so when you're underwater you really only hear uh, your breathing and and you see a whole new world you know underwater that's that sort of makes you forget all your troubles on land mm. Mm. So that's kind of maybe what's what he, uh, you know, why he liked diving so much is that, you know, you could just do that. And so he wanted to take us, you know, on this journey. Mm. So coming through your high school years and, you know, thinking about where you're headed in your life, was that, did you know that the ocean would be part of it? Or because um, you, you ended up like biology and, and ocean has become quite important to you. I'm just trying to trace through when did you know that was where you were headed? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess film film was the where I like like how I got my love of of, of the underwater world as well. Right. Like through, you know, the Abyss by James Cameron, mm -hmm. the the Grand Bleu by Luc Besson. You know, these films were you know throughout my childhood and and teenage years they were sort of iconic. I had like movie posters on my walls, and every summer I still went diving and I you know I got better and better and more confident. Mm. Um, and then I got interested in the biology as well. I started to go to museums a bit more with my parents, with my, you know, school trips and things like that. Um, and it, it wasn't really clear that the the ocean was going to be um, my main thing, if you want. It was more sort of cinema at that moment. You know, yeah. film was sort of more my my journey. But I also, you know, yeah, yeah, sort of also assumed that the ocean would be a part of it one way or another, mm. either as a hobby or as a place where I would live I would live close to the ocean and I would include the ocean somehow in my life mm -hmm. it's only later when I was in my mid-20s that really it was really sort of clear to me that that was going to be it mm. um, and I was be, you know going to be able to live off it as well which is not it's not an easy thing to do yeah so so what did you end up studying was it the filmmaking aspects of it yeah so I did a bachelor of arts in Exeter for three years mm -hmm. And I learned European film and world cinema. So I learned uh -huh. about filmmaking, directors, film theory, genre theory, uh, the, you know, the history from, from the early days of the Lumiere brothers mm -hmm. uh, through to the French New Wave, the Hollywood uh, classics and, and the golden era of Hollywood and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And all the way to the modern days and, and sort of the more science fiction uh, and, and, you know, genre films that we that we see today and 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 yeah so three years at Exeter followed by one year in Paris uh, as a practical uh, program there at the a uh, the ACAR film the International School of Paris where I did uh, practical filmmaking directing producing mm -hmm. working as a grip as an electrician as as you know different kinds of roles assistant uh, learning about you know all of the different uh, jobs that are involved in filmmaking. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes than people realize, right? When when the f image is on there, because often at the end of movies, you look at the credits and just see how many names there are 
it's phenomenal, isn't it? Like, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people involved. It's funny you mentioned that because, because you know, as a kid, I yeah, I used to always remember the the logos at the beginning of the films, the mm -hmm. studios. You have like you know MGM, Twentieth right. Century Fox, and you have all these different brands and logos. And I used to remember all of them, and I used to know which ones were who and and who was behind which production was was you know involved with which director i mean you know often mm -hmm. there's associations that continue and and i used to watch the credits at the end as well and recognize names and mm. so so that's yeah that's sort of my childhood as well yeah. yeah oh interesting so growing up was there a director or a movie that was particularly influential that that made you think this is what i want to do or was it a combination of just loving the the whole art form yeah, I guess, I mean, if there's one film, it would probably be The Big Blue. So it's a French film about two freedivers, uh, friends when they're kids, mm -hmm. Jean Reno and Enzo, um, sorry, and uh, Jacques Mayol. So so the, the French, uh, the famous apneist Jacques Mayol actually existed. So it was based on his life mm. um, and adapted. But it's a, basically a childhood story of two friends who then compete in adult life for who goes the deepest, mm. on a, you know, on a single breath. And it's a love story. It's a, it's a, you know, it's 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 romance, but it's also adventure and friendship, and also the love of the ocean and and the sort of the, mm. the 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 beautiful shots of Luc Besson. It's a film by Luc Besson, just were sort of captivating. And the music. It's one of those films. Uh, I think it was 1989. It came out. It was just one of those cult classics. Mm. Um, you can still watch it on the big screen, and you know every. Uh, anniversary year they they you know they bring it out again on the cinema and you can go and watch it it's it's a classic yeah. mm. so having studied film a lot more than me or probably most of the listeners <laughs> what is it that that you know stepping back and objectively looking what are the ingredients that make up that quality cinema experience i mean you mentioned before music being a big part of it and the the beauty of the shot and the story I, well, those are probably important, <laughs> but what are the other things that, that you think are key? I think characters, you know, if you think of, of a film, you've got, you got different theorists out there, and, and that's what I studied in school. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's really like the character idea that you, you evolve, you, you have like, you don't have one permanent state as a character, you will learn, you will fall, and you will evolve, you will either, you know, cry or laugh, but, mm -hmm. you know, there's a progression, and, and a lot of theorists talk about the character arc and things like that and mm. usually in three stages i mean that's kind of the you know typical greek tragedy kind of structure of you know you've got the act one act two and then the, the, the you know the final act uh but yeah usually you, you structure your stories uh using your characters as a sort of a, a you know a thread and then you sort of follow characters and you see the world through their eyes so you've got to have strong characters when you're making mm. films certainly fiction but also documentaries Mm. Yeah. What do you mean by the documentary needing a strong character? You mean like a central figure is tracing their life or their their work? I mean, different documentaries have different styles, but mm. I guess if you're, you know, I mean, some documentaries don't have any characters, and that's mm. fine. You have like a narration, and you know, it's it also works. But I feel that if you want to do uh, storytelling uh, through documentaries that really moves and really inspires and and gets people on board and and gets the emotions I suppose it's better to use characters that you can identify to mm -hmm. and finding the right characters is is really important uh, recently I watched a film uh, at Lumiere the new cinema uh, oh no actually it was Alice yeah, yeah I went to the Alice cinema in town that the the, the art house cinema in Christchurch and I watched a film about honey and it was a a, mm -hmm. a female 
probably in the 60s in Bulgaria or I think it was Macedonia uh, about honey and how she basically um, looks after these bees and she was just a fabulous character so mm. you know these amazing eyes and this amazing um, relationship with nature with the bees and you see how her journey uh, I mean I won't tell the whole film but it's a great film it's called Honeyland yeah, hmm. it's about honey yeah. yeah the amazing thing is that there's stories everywhere you look right and it's about drawing out the character and and telling them in a way that's compelling because yeah. probably if you, if that story was first pitched uh you know i don't know what the first reaction would be but you, you, there is a good story there it's just how you tell it and it's also time like i believe the directors um spent four years all right following that character so oh. they went to, to macedonia and they discovered the village she was living in. It's like made of rubble. It's like a you know an old ruin, and she lived there hmm. with her mother, and and they followed her for for four years as she you know harvests the honey, looks after the bees, and goes to the market and sells the you know the honey, and hmm. and then you see all these other characters come into play as well. You know, in a natural sort of character arc progression, hmm. but it's it's fabulous. It's really it's really, hmm. and it won some awards as well. So it's, yeah. like, it's a really successful film. Yeah. Well, in the show notes, we'll put the name and some links because it's good to amplify some of those things. Like, yeah, it's not about yeah. the ocean. It's, yeah. about, it's completely <laughs> different, but it's really really good. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. So, what happened next for you? We're kind of up to you finished the year in Paris. Um, yeah. How did you work out that this is what you wanted to do? Yeah. Look, I mean, it was a really sort of an interesting journey. Two thousand nine hit the, the the GFC, the the, the global financial crisis, mm -hmm. and it was a very difficult time to get work in Europe at that time. And coming to film school, uh, often you work for free, you volunteer, you work in a bar and a cafe, and I just wouldn't, you know, I wasn't going to do that for for too much longer. So we decided to go to New Zealand mm. with my girlfriend at the time, okay. wife now. Mm -hmm. uh, and we spent a year in New Zealand, then a year in Australia, Fiji, Samoa, sort of island hopping. Mm. And then I became a dive master um, as a scuba diving guide. Mm -hmm. And I ended up somehow on the Great Barrier Reef. All right. Interesting. Yeah. So which part of the Great Barrier Reef were you on? Right at the, the top or...? Yeah, so I was living in Port Douglas, okay. and I worked for an operation called Calypso Reef Charters. So I was going out every day on the reef, taking people diving up mm -hmm. to to eight divers um, mm -hmm. at a time. And yeah, it was uh, it, it, it was one of the most important experiences in my sort of twenties mm -hmm. that sort of made me pivot back to the ocean, mm -hmm. and then made me want to go back to university and study marine science at a master's level. Mm. So that experience, you know, seeing firsthand the impacts of climate change on mm. on the Great Barrier Reef and bleaching and and wanting to, you know, educate people was really um, a really important moment. Yeah, it's interesting because when I in the 1980s, I remember going with my family, like my parents took us to the Great Barrier Reef. And I just have these vivid memories of, you know, just snorkel, but looking underneath and just the colors, it was just phenomenal, amazing. The variety of fish swimming and, and the coral. Yeah, it was a beautiful spot. Yeah, I remember like the first, so, yeah, the first time I saw corals was in 2010 in the Cook Islands. We, okay. we left New Zealand for a week and I was blown away then. And that's when I met a dive master who said, look, you know, it's easy. You can become a dive master. You just do your paddy learning and so on. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And then a year later, I was in Samoa for three months and I, and I became a dive master. And I mm -hmm. was taking people, showing them, the, you know, the beautiful fish, the colors, the parrot fish, the turtles, mm -hmm. teaching them about hawksbill and, 
and you know um, different types of corals, soft coral, hard coral, mm. how it lives in symbiosis with this you know strange algae called zooks, mm. um, and yeah, and and then yeah, the Great Barrier Reef was just blew me away. I mean, I always wanted to go to the reef, and um, and when I you know when I finally got there, I I was just blown away. And mm. when I went back five years later as a, as a Masters of Science graduate and filmmaker working with like you know, IUCN, and I made a film that, you know, I was devastated when I saw the, the, the impacts of the global bleaching event that happened. Mm. So I went back in 2017, um, and it was just, you know, a graveyard. It, wow. was, it was, yeah, 50% of it was destroyed. So it was just really, really sad to see the destruction after having been so inspired by the beautiful colors and the life. And mm. um, yeah, so that made me even more uh, wanting to continue this this fight, you know, to, yeah. to, to save the ocean, yeah. Yeah. So tell us a bit more about that in terms of your focus. You know, like, we each get one life. <laughs> we have relatively limited time on our Earth. It sounds like that's become a real focus for you is, is climate change and the impacts on the ocean. Yeah, yeah, I suppose, I mean, filmmaking and ocean science, the two combined, then you get pretty much what I've been doing over the last five, six years now. Mm -hmm. So I founded a company called Manaya Productions. I work with small and large institutions, scientific organizations, multilateral agencies, governments, communicating that to, to policymakers to kind of, you know, change things. Mm -hmm. um, and also to greater audiences using characters that we talked about earlier and mm -hmm. changing people's attitudes and behaviors. Mm. Um, so films that are, that are yes, that, that sort of change things. People can realize, oh, we need to do this. And also showcasing the science that's required to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's Manaya Productions. And Blue Cradle is really my, the continuation of that. It's like, how do you do that? Well, you need to do it out there. You can do it from the coast, but you need to be out on the ocean. And in order to do that, you've got to have a research vessel. Mm. And a research vessel that's non-polluting, that's accessible, that's, you know, there's loads of big research vessels now. You have uh, Ocean X that's just launched a massive new vessel that's great. Rev Ocean in Norway, similar thing. Very, very big budgets, billionaires, you know, funding them. Mm -hmm. But we need the big ones, but we also need the little ones. We need smaller platforms that are available for, you know, people in universities, people in, in research institutions that don't necessarily have access to these big ones. Mm -hmm. And also we need them all over the world. You know, these big ones can only be in one place at the same time. Right. So New Zealand does not have a, a, an accessible, a small accessible research vessel platform. So we identified that gap and that's what Blue Cradle is about. It's about making this research vessel accessible and telling the story of the researchers doing this this uh, tremendously you know important work yeah yeah i remember when we first started talking about it and it's it's a big part of it is about the education side isn't it to raise awareness um because it's been it's actually been really fun for me to work with you on blue cradle because my father was a marine biologist so it's in a way it's like a circle for me not that i ever became one but for him that was a huge part of his life was aquaculture of fish the ocean um, that's actually why we ended up in New Zealand because he was raising salmon in New Zealand. Um, so it's been really fun to see what you're doing there with Blue Cradle. And in terms of your initiatives and your hopes for the future with it, what are some of the things that you're focusing on? Yeah, I mean, New Zealand's on the, you know, the southern, um, like in the southern hemisphere, close mm -hmm. to Antarctica. Yeah. And the Southern Ocean is one of the main climate uh, regulators. So we, we you know, we notice it immense productivity down there 
And it's sort of, you know, it's like the big sort of cooling system for the earth. Mm. Uh, and we're just slowly understanding that with the global ocean conveyor belts, the, mm. the you know, the ocean circulation, um, the, you know, the Southern Ocean is fundamentally important. And also the, the, the Antarctic continent and the waters around it um, are really highly productive. So we've mm. got plankton that's uh, representing 50% of the oxygen that we breathe. One out of every, you know, every two breaths you take is linked to plankton. Um, so those two facts make me think that we need to really focus on Southern Ocean and Antarctica protection. Mm -hmm. um, there's an initiative right now called Antarctica 2020. You can sign the petition to create more marine reserves down in Antarctica. Currently, there's one large marine reserve called the Ross Sea, mm -hmm. and it's designated and protected until um, uh, 35 years from now. So we've got 35 years of protection. Beyond that, we don't know. Mm -hmm. Countries need to come together again and agree and decide. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a pending agreement between world nations on the high seas as well. So high seas is really 60% of the oceans. Uh, they're unprotected, unregulated. There's illegal fishing happening. Um, equally, we need to protect them. So really, mm. we, we need to do a lot more to protect the oceans. Mm. And I feel that New Zealand, given where it is, given the size of its exclusive economic zone, 15 mm. times larger than its land, uh, really, most of New Zealand is ocean. Um, and I feel that New Zealand has a really, really important role to play mm -hmm. and should seize the opportunity really to, mm -hmm. to become a really vocal advocate for, for Kaitiakitanga of Te Moana. Mm. I like that. It's always fun to hear different perspectives. You know, you think of New Zealand as being the islands, but if you actually take that bigger picture and look at what's, what else is out there surrounding, all of a sudden your perspective changes, right? Yeah, I was, you know, I was discussing with, uh, you know, I mean, most people who are, you know, conservationists, biologists who know New Zealand as a subantarctic, subtropical place, they know that the, the, the biggest diversity will be found in those islands, you know, the mm. subantarctic and, and subtropical islands of, you know, Kermadex and down to the bottom, Auckland Islands, Campbell, and, and you know, and, and, and those islands are really neglected and not mm. really well known. Uh, that recently, there was a proposal to, to enlarge a marine protected area. I think it was Campbell, mm. and it didn't go through, you know. Mm. So there's a real, I think, problem mm. of, of connecting with the marine environment in New Zealand. And mm. I feel that a project like Blue Cradle and building, you know, on the partnerships with s some other ocean conservation NGOs that are already doing this work, I feel that together we can unite and really make this uh, you know, uh, a beneficial, you know, beneficial thing, both for the environment, but also for the for society and, and the economy as well. Mm -hmm. Because you talked about uh, aquaculture earlier, New Zealand is, is also a very big uh, aquaculture producer, mm -hmm. the, the region of Nelson, but also Christchurch, mm -hmm. we have aquaculture farms, and they're, you know, they're tremendously valuable, because uh, different species can can um, work the environment in different ways, you know, filter mm -hmm. feeders actually benefit the the environment you can associate species together to make the water cleaner and safer and you can still reap the benefits from from you know storing carbon and also feeding populations so mm. so i really see that you know the aquaculture sector is really really important mm. in, in in making that shift to, to sort of a more sustainable circular economy mm. yeah. and maybe we'll start to realize more that that you know you mentioned kaya moana and you know food from the ocean that actually there's a lot that we maybe haven't even realized because I lived in Japan for five years. So the variety of seaweeds that you can get in Japan is amazing. And in a way, if we could somehow learn about some of those things and, and start harvesting different products that maybe in the past we didn't consider, it might be interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, plastic packaging, for example, you know, plastics. Mm. We talk a lot about plastics, microplastics. Uh, algae, actually, you know, actually has uh, the, you know, you could use algae f- to to make packaging. There's a company here in uh, mm. in Christchurch, a startup called Kelpen. Mm. Uh, I actually met the the co-founder the other day, mm. and, and they're basically trying to grow kelp forests mm. um, to store carbon, but also you you know be used for for biodegradable packaging that replaces mm. the you know the oil-based plastics that we use. Yeah. So there's there's tremendous amount of solutions in the ocean mm. in different sectors: energy, mm. food. Um, you know, climate change. We just need to seize the opportunity really to invest in the ocean mm-hmm. uh, on a scale never seen before. We need to really rethink our society. Uh, you know, why isn't there like electric vessels between Wellington and Littleton? You know, for mm-hmm. example, we could do like, you know, electric water taxis. You know, there's all sorts of, of ideas and projects that we're just not realizing the potential. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. So you mentioned that you came to New Zealand now like 10 years ago, um, and now you're living back here. What was your thinking of as why New Zealand would be the place that you wanted to to come? Because I know you've got a young family. Yeah. So 10 years ago, we came here as backpackers. We Mm -hmm. picked kiwi fruit. We Mm Um, crucially, I worked with Greenpeace, so I did three months with Greenpeace in Auckland as a fundraiser, and I also sort of got into the environmental campaigning side of things. So, I, you know, I am a scientist, I'm a filmmaker, mm-hmm. but I do have a tendency to be a strong advocate for the for the positions that I defend, and I think the the early days with Greenpeace were, were you know really important. Um, t- t- you know, ten years later, moving back, we, we you know we're here um, um, through Manaya Productions, thanks to the Edmund Hillary Fellowships. I'm an Edmund Hillary Fellow. Mm-hmm. I moved here with my family. My wife is a French teacher. The reason we moved here was quite simple: is we really sort of wanted to to, to close the circle, you know, and and come back to where we had this fantastic sort of eye-opening experience ten years ago. Of you know, there's a mm. whole world out there, and there's islands, and it's a different part of the world, the South Pacific, being a you know a ocean you know, ocean advocate and a marine scientist and so passionate about, you know, these issues. Mm-hmm. I couldn't think of a better place to be. Um, and and so, yeah, so we moved here and, and for the better and for the worse. I mean, we are far away from our families. And mm-hmm. right now with the COVID situation, it's not it's likely that we won't be seeing them for, for you know, a little while. Mm-hmm. Uh, having said that, it's a time to build. It's a time to design, to think of the future. Uh, I've got two young children. I mean, one and, and one that's just about to be born mm-hmm. um, and it's the time to design and build for the future and really plan ahead uh, and make sure that this next generation has a planet to live on so all my time and efforts will be towards that um, you know acquisition of data oceanic data which I believe will help us um, you know live through the next decades and mm-hmm. hopefully we'll find some of the solutions to all of our challenges in the ocean and I, and I firmly believe that mm. yeah that's good well, I agree. Having information helps, and education is a big part of that. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about Edmund Hillary Fellowship and what that experience has been like for you, like coming in with a cohort of people? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a year and a half now um, that I've been in New Zealand, and I, and I moved. I mean, my first experience of the Edmund Hillary Fellowship was in late 2018, so it's it's been yeah almost two years now. And for me, it's it's a big family. You know, it's a big family of entrepreneurs, mm. of change makers all under the banner of Sir Ed, you know, Sir Edmund Hillary, who was, you know, this this amazing, ins- inspiring person um, that that's happened to be a New Zealander mm-hmm. and happened to, to climb Everest, but had this really humble, humble attitude to being the first man to, to, to be at the top of Everest. And mm-hmm. I think 
what he did after uh, climbing Everest and founding his foundation and all the work that he did in India and Nepal um, and in Africa. I mean, it's, it's for me, it's really inspiring because he was not about the, the, you know, the prize of conquering the mountain. I mean, it's, it's the famous quote, it's not the mountain you conquer, it's, it's yourself. Mm. And I feel that he was just the perfect um, role model really to, to, you know, to follow in, in, you know, in his footsteps. So for me, the Edmund Hillary Fellowship is made of of people who, who firmly believe that and want to walk in those footsteps and others who, who perhaps uh, are doing similar things globally um, and, and trying to connect the dots between changing the world and also, you know, you know, being really sort of these, these leaders. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's, it's difficult to, to do both. So that's kind of the, 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 um, the realization is that you can only solve the, the biggest challenges by working as a team. So that's kind of where we're at now as a, as a community. And I feel that it's becoming a sort of a very large community. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to really sort of come together as one, but it's, it's, not, it's not the easiest mm. because we've got so many different people and, and, and we're not in the same place as well. So we're not able to sort of uh, see each other frequently. But I, you know, I still feel that um, it, it's a hugely beneficial network of people. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, um, it's full of people with you know, shared values. And that's, that's the most important. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. And in terms of um, your own future, just thinking, you know, Europe must still have a call for you as well, given family and things. Because my wife's from the UK, so it's quite a long way. (laughs) Um, But is New Zealand becoming the place where you're planning to be? Or is it hard to tell at this point? I mean, for me, it's 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 a no-brainer that it is the place mm. where we're going to be. I mean, my child is just one year from attending school, yep. so he'll be starting school next year, and our second child uh, will be born here. Born so here, yeah. we're going to have a strong attachment to here now. Mm. And given the fact that I've just launched a foundation and a, and a company mm-hmm. and, and a venture um, with a sort of a long-term objective, mm-hmm. I certainly uh, see myself here for the next decade, yeah. uh, one way or another. Um, and if I could travel uh, as, as less as possible with, with carbon intensive flying around and long haul, you know, long hauls is, is, you know, not my favorite thing. So yeah, uh, I won't. I'd rather stay here and do short haul and, and just, you know, go to the islands and help out develop something here that's lasting, something that lasts. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that because um, I'm really glad that you've made Christchurch your home. Um, people don't know this, but behind the scenes, we were doing this impact on conference now like nine months ago i remember you came along and we were talking about it and behind the scenes you were helping with some video production which we didn't end up using because covid got in the way (laughs) Um, but it's there for the in-person event that we eventually run Um, so thank you for that and you also spoke at the impact and conference the the virtual one that we held so we'll link to that and um, yeah that was cool it's a, a video that's out there now yeah, it's a, it was a great experience, and um, I'm, I, you know, I'm full in support of digital pivots, but I still believe that in, in, you know, in-person events uh, are, are ways where we can really come together and see each other and touch each other. And, and I was actually preparing a bid to host um, the International Marine Protected Area Congress in 2025 for Christchurch, which oh, is right. a significant event with 1,500 attendees from all around the world, um, working on marine conservation issues, marine scientists, oceanographers, mm-hmm. marine reserve and marine protected areas, marine park managers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were looking at Tip High, so we had a few meetings with 
tourism in New Zealand and we're preparing the bid. So, the, All right. the, yeah, this is still uh, ongoing and we haven't dropped it, but, yeah. uh, you know, even with COVID, but it's, um, I feel it's an opportunity. Christchurch is a great place. Ototahi mm. is sort of rebranding uh, as, a, as a place of exploration, mm. but also a place of, of um, somehow bringing these two worlds together. Mm -hmm. the, the sort of the authentic, traditional, you know, mm. wisdom that the Maori have, but also the modern uh, exploring and humble, you know, you know, it, you know, Sir Ed, you know, came here, but also other explorers. Uh, and, and I see it's, yeah, it's the newest city in the world. You know, mm. it's gone through so much with the earthquakes and, and the killings in, in March last year. And it still has this sort of resilient mm. attitude. So it's, it's a really interesting place to be. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I, I came back about four and a half years ago. So for me, even that's not that long ago. <laughs> and it was a choice of where are we going to move? And Christchurch was the place. I, I grew up here, so it was home. But it was still that conscious choice of this is where I want to be. And just thinking about the ocean, it's actually interesting, you know, the explorer's idea that you mentioned in terms of Antarctica, because Christchurch was the, the jumping off point for some of those very early explorers who were, you know, Scott and Shackleton and Wilson and That's Bowen right. and all these people. Yeah. yeah, and it still is. I mean, it still yeah. is. It's, it's, the, it's the home of the Antarctic mm. uh, science program, but, uh, the New Zealand one, but also... Mm. The, the the American one and and the Italians and Koreans participate mm. uh, in that as well and and they benefit from from Christchurch Airport mm. and they fly you know every October and, and they go down to McMurdo and Scott Base yeah uh, and it still has that that role it's one of five gateway cities to Antarctica yeah so uh, it's it's a great place to be you know for all those reasons you know you know I feel that Blue Cradle has a home here as well because of Littleton it's the mm. third largest port in the country mm. and Christchurch let's not forget is the second city in New Zealand you know mm. sorry Wellington I mean I, you know I really <laughs> like Wellington but um but actually Christchurch is the second in size and, and population yeah. Mm. yeah yeah that's true so just taking a different tack here but just thinking about ocean and oceanographers and people involved in that space are there some people that you would say no, nobody has heard of them, but they're doing amazing things. I'm thinking about the heroes of today. You know, you mentioned like Jack Cousteau's kind of obviously iconic sort of status, but are there people out there doing some good work that we could shine a light on and say, wow, that's some really cool stuff? I've got a long list yeah. actually, <laughs> of, of, of people that I know of that are in different parts of the world different sort of uh, generations but what you know one that in, you know continuously inspires me is is dr sylvia earl and she's a an american oceanographer um the founder of mission blue which is an organization uh, based uh, in america but but works globally mm -hmm. and and they work on one program called hope spots mm -hmm. so the hope spots program is really they they identify areas of the world you know marine areas islands and coasts and and um, and and you know with features that you know distinctive features species, mm -hmm. and they are you know they they nominate them as a hope spot where you know that needs protecting, mm -hmm. and so that's what you know one of the areas of work that they do. But she you know she she's also a tremendous uh, ocean and climate advocate. She speaks at large UN events and mm -hmm. conferences, and and she's an honorary uh, a doctorate of, of my university, the University of Edinburgh where I spent um, uh, one year studying a, a master's of marine science. Mm. Um, so I actually met her a couple of times. I interviewed her a few times, and she, and, and she continuously, you know, inspires me. And and, um, and I feel that, you know, there's a lot of people that are walking in her footsteps. Um, women in, in science in particular mm. are, are really impressive, and I've got lots of 
women colleagues who are just walking in the footsteps of of uh, her, her deepness, as she's called, uh, Sylvia Earle. Mm. But uh, yeah, all around the world, men, women, scientists, human beings, you know, doing tremendously important work in policy as well, you know, mm. advocating, defending the, you know, changes in, in, uh, in the law to protect specific species. And, you know, they go to these U UN meetings, these convention meetings, mm. and they do all that hard work as well. So yeah, kudos to them, because it's, it's it's an uphill battle, you know, when you need to protect the environment and the marine environment, it's mm. so far away and removed that people just, you know, mm. and it's it's complex, it's extremely complex, mm. uh, which is why, you know, that, you know, that's what I'm trying to do is to really decomplexify that and explain it to, to wide audiences. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's really good. I think you're right. It's sometimes the ocean is so big in a way, you know, if you think about it, it covers vast quantities of our planet and yet we're so focused on the land-based activities and you know building houses and things that um yeah i think we sometimes forget the richness that's out there in the ocean as well yeah 90 percent of the living space on the planet is in the bottom of the ocean right we've only explored uh i think this year we've just come up to 20 percent mm. there's a program called the seabed 2030 that yeah their goal is to map the seabed by 2030 and we've only mapped 20% of it so we've got 80% mm. to go in the next nine years wow 10 years yeah. yeah yeah and in terms of the future like let's let's cast our vision 50 years from now <laughs> what sort of innovations or things do you think we could achieve in, in terms of yeah I, it's an open question so um, have you seen any theories or thoughts of, in terms of um, even like living on the ocean or you know, habitable places somehow that, that gets used. Totally. I mean, this was a conversation we had uh, last week, actually. Sylvia Earle, she did a webinar with her daughter. Okay. Um, and I, I participated in that. And she was talking about habitats under the sea in the okay. deep ocean. Mm -hmm. And submarines are one, but you have these these habitats that could be used for science, but also for, you know, you know actually living in the water. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a few... Uh, you know, companies and ventures out there that are doing that, but it's it's still very early days. But you could imagine a future where we could all live on the ocean, either in, in floating cities mm. or underwater in like cities that can then somehow create their own uh, resources underwater. You have tidal and wave energy. So you've got, you know, you've got your energy base. You've mm -hmm. got the food that's there that's everywhere around you. You've got oxygen in the water that's there that's everywhere around you. So, you know, that... We have the technology now to, you know, to be out there and to sort of make your own oxygen, make your own food, produce your own energy. You could live out in the ocean. Mm. You can live, use the sun, uh, you know, on the surface. So there's, you know, there's so much we could do. Mm. And I think we're just at the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, we, yeah, we should really sort of rethink everything that mm. we know. You know, 71% of the planet is covered in ocean. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's always strange to me to think that we know more of the surface of Mars than we do of the bottom of the ocean. Mm. Um, well, that's where my mind was going when you were talking, actually, is the billions of dollars that's spent on space travel and going, and yet we don't know our own backyard. Yeah, it's interesting to think yeah. about. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's canyons, there's species. We, we estimate we've discovered 200,000 species, um, the, the, the world uh, database of marine uh, species, but we... We actually believe there's probably between one and two million, you mm. know, anywhere, you know, in between there, mm. uh, out there that's waiting to be discovered. Mollusks, crustaceans, fish, mm -hmm. microscopic, you know, plankton and mm. 
you know, zooplankton. Um, and yeah, so, so we've got so much to discover and exploring is really the first step. We need to explore, build the awareness mm. and then build stewardship. That's mm. kind of what we, we've got to do because if we don't protect it, you know, that's what's at the, the, the base of civilization, you know, mm. plankton. If we lose plankton, if the ocean somehow fails and goes into such a decline that it fails and the ocean can fail, then we're going to be in big trouble. Mm. Yeah. Well, keep up the good work. <laughs> um, it's really interesting just having done quite a bit with you in terms of setting up Blue Cradle now to hear that perspective. So I just want to say thanks for coming on the show. And we'll put some links in the show notes as well so people can find out more. In terms of the next steps, um, have you got any thoughts or parting thoughts or things that people could do to get involved if they wanted to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a real pleasure to be on, on Seeds. And um, for, for me, it's the beginning of the journey with Blue Cradle. We don't have a lot of time. So mm -hmm. I do realize that we, we need to get this platform, this research vessel platform going. Mm -hmm. um, we're looking at having a, a design ready soon um, to go to funders, investors. Mm -hmm. and, and we're looking at building a monohull, a, you know, a, a monohull ship, sailboat that's um, low in, in energy consumption. It's really well, uh, you know, well designed and built um, for heat transfer. Mm -hmm. That's um, capable of going both to Antarctica and also the South Pacific Islands, where where it's you know tropical climate, mm -hmm. and helping some of our brothers and sisters there collect data. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, we are looking for partners. We are looking for sponsors mm -hmm. to help us get through this this setting up phase, which mm -hmm. is really really fundamental. Mm -hmm. So if if you want to get in touch, please please visit our website and, and uh, yeah, don't hesitate to, to email me or phone me. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, we'll put the links in and, and we'll see what happens. But thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a Friday afternoon as we're talking. So I appreciate your taking time out to share with us. Thank you very much, Stephen. And uh, yeah, I look forward to coming again sometime in the future. Sounds good. <laughs> well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with James. I just loved hearing about the ocean and the work that he's doing with Blue Cradle. It's been really fun to be up close watching him think through how it's going to be started and what the purpose and objectives are. I'll definitely be watching this one with interest. If you enjoyed this, then consider checking out some of the other episodes in the back catalog as well. And there's heaps of information at theseeds.nz. Until next time.